So here we are, the second Sunday of Epiphany Tide. Didn't you like how Dave said Epiphany Tide? That helps get away from one of the first, um, I will call it a disagreement in our marriage, my Dave and I, as to is Epiphany a day or a season? We have had other disagreements. Sometimes I like to stick the word holy in front of something. It does amazing things for it. So we've had holy disagreements around a lot of things. Things like as innocuous as, what is a chair for? <laughs> to me, a chair, particularly a chair in the bedroom, is to sit on, and if you're not sitting on it, it's to look nice. <laughs> to, to someone else in our household, a chair is to put your clothes on. Though I can't actually drive that point home too much because I put all my clothes on the floor and you never say a word, so thank you. <laughs> Epiphany, a day or a season? We've learned in our marriage to look at each other and say, you're right, dear. Dave grew up in a tradition where Epiphany was just a day, as we looked at two weeks ago with, when Garrett led us through the exploration of the wise men coming to the young child, Jesus. I grew up in a tradition where Epiphany is a season, and we actually had this argument uh, our first January of married life. Both are right. Epiphany is a day, but it's also this season from now until Ash Wednesday. So every year that, you know, the date of Ash Wednesday changes according to the date of Easter, which changes according to the first full moon after the spring equinox. If you didn't know that, there's your trivia for the week. But anywhere from six weeks to eight weeks approximately is the length of Epiphany tide. And in Epiphany, what we pay attention to is the revealing of Jesus revealing his glory among us. That word epiphany from the Greek word, I've got it down here. Um, That word epiphany from the Greek word epiphania. Should have known that one, epiphania, which simply means manifestation, a revealing, here he is, Jesus. And so after beginning the church here with all these stories about Jesus' birth, The Gospels themselves and our attention in our readings jumps to his adulthood. There's only one story in there about his childhood at age 12 at the temple. But we jump to his adulthood, specifically to his three years of ministry, beginning with his baptism, which is what we looked at and celebrated last Sunday, continuing on through the rest of Epiphany, the stories of his earthly life and ministry as he reveals himself to his disciples. Stories in Epiphany Tide of Jesus revealing his glory to those with eyes to see and ears to hear. Like young Samuel in our Old Testament reading. I commend all four of those readings. I'm really going to focus on the Gospel reading, but all four have something in common. And if you didn't catch it as we read it, They're printed in your little bulletin. Take it home and read them this week and look for. How are all four of these readings about the glory of God? Because they are. John, the Apostle John especially, frames his entire gospel around the glory of Jesus. John's take on the nativity, we don't read in John about the manger, about the shepherds, about the wise men. John's reference to Jesus' birth right there in chapter 1 is this. 
The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen, complete it, his glory. Okay, right from the beginning of John. This is the gospel. Jesus revealing his glory in our midst. John goes on in that very same passage. God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. Making him known. Epiphany. And then John goes on through his gospel to tell stories of Jesus revealing, specifically seven stories where, where John ends each story by saying, with this sign, Jesus revealed his glory. There's an eighth one added in the epilogue, John chapter 21. But till you get to that epilogue, it's seven, seven, a sign of fullness and wholeness. This is what Jesus is about, revealing the presence of God in our midst. Begins actually uh, not with this week's reading, but with another set of readings right after this in the Gospel of John. That first sign is the wedding in Cana. But even here, in the paragraph before that first formal sign, we see Jesus' glory revealed, beginning with his baptism. Now, the other Gospels actually describe the baptism of Jesus. John does not. But John alludes to it when he has John the Baptist pointing out Jesus as he walks by and saying, that's the one. He's the one that I saw the Spirit come down on. He's the one that I've said, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. I'm baptizing with water, but he's baptizing with the Holy Spirit. Reference right then and there to Jesus' baptism. His first manifestation of his glory. So, we come to our gospel reading. Still in John chapter 1. Jesus has come back from his 40 days in the wilderness right after his baptism. And as he walks along, John the Baptist points him out and says, that's the one. Couple of his, couple of John's disciples follow Jesus to find out more, and then the next day, here's our gospel reading. The next day, the group grows as Jesus tells Philip, "Come with me. I'm going up to Galilee." And Philip quickly finds his good friend Nathaniel and says, "Hey, we found the one written about in the Law and the Prophets, Jesus from Nazareth. Come and see." Now already we know something about Nathaniel. He's one of these first disciples. And the first disciples of Jesus were actually hanging out there with John the Baptist at the Jordan River, part of a revival that John the Baptist was leading. They were there baptized as repentance for their sins. They were looking for the Messiah. So Nathaniel's a godly person. We also know that he studies and knows the scriptures. Because that's how Philip gets his interest. After all, Philip says, we found the one written about in the law and the prophets. He wouldn't say that if he didn't know that. You wouldn't go up to a friend who knows nothing about the scriptures and say, I found the one the scriptures are talking about. They don't lead with that unless that's where the person is. Already, Nathaniel knows the prophecies about the Messiah. Since when Philip says, Jesus of Nazareth, Nathaniel replies, Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because the Messiah is supposed to come from where? According to the law and the prophets. From Bethlehem. Nathaniel knows this, so he's not going to take that seriously. There's likely some prejudice at play here as well. Nazareth was this little podunk town up in the north. Population of only 500 people. Tiny place. Obscure. 
But mainly, we know the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem, not Nazareth. Now we have another clue here as to Nathanael's character. Because John writes that when Philip came to get Nathanael, he found him under a fig tree. The shade of a fig tree, then and likely now if you live in a hot place, the shade is where you would sit, shade of a fig tree, where you would sit to read the scriptures. So much so that in rabbinic literature, the phrase under the fig tree means you're studying the scriptures. So it'd be, like we, it'd be like us saying, I came to get you when you were having your quiet time. Okay? may not mean something to other people, but we know what we mean by that. And when Philip goes to get Nathaniel under the fig tree, it's saying, this is what Nathaniel's doing when Philip goes to get him. He's in the midst of studying the scriptures, prayerfully, Messiah, where are you? Perhaps this is part of why the people who compiled the lectionary for today, probably back in the 1950s, I think, the readings were set up together, Old Testament, New Testament, Psalm, Gospel, paired for Samuel 3, because Samuel was someone who learned to listen to God. And as Nathaniel grows up studying the scriptures, he's learning to listen to God. Here he is, prayerfully studying the scriptures, when Philip urges him to come. Why does he go with him? If he's already dismissive of Jesus being from Nazareth, why do you think he goes with him? I think in part just because he trusts Philip. People whom we invite to get to know Jesus will come because they trust us. Never downplay the significance of relational trust. There's a strong emphasis here, in fact, in the whole Gospel of John on Jesus revealing himself in community. It's rarely when someone is just like sitting in their own little prayer closet praying. It's in community when Jesus reveals himself, reveals his glory. But also Nathaniel's been praying for Messiah. That's what coming for this baptism, John's baptism, was all about. Part of this revival, have the revival, Messiah come. So that when he hears something from Philip, even though he doesn't understand it, it doesn't make sense. Because he's been praying, something stirs in him and he comes. Expectant praying opens us up to revelation when it comes. So Nathaniel responds, and as he comes up, Jesus greets him with these words. Behold, here's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. And then Jesus goes on to say, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. What he's really saying, what Jesus is saying and adding that bit about the fig tree is saying, I know what you were doing. I know you were just praying as you read the scriptures. Now to us looking back, we sort of read that, I read that anyway, a little bit blasé, like, oh yeah, okay, this is the kind of thing Jesus does. He knows these things about us. But look at Nathanael's response. Nathanael says, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Now in the verses right before this, when Jesus meets Peter, he meets Peter and he looks at him and he says, Simon, I'm gonna gonna call you Cephas, the rock. Peter doesn't say, you're the son of God. Okay, so like, oh, you know me? Nice, let me get to know you. 
So why does Nathaniel have this seemingly extreme response? You're the son of God. Well, listen again to what Jesus says as Nathaniel approaches. He says, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, if you, like Nathaniel, study and know the Old Testament scriptures, what resonates is you hear the words Israel and deceit. Bring to mind the character in the Old Testament, character named deceit, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Isaac's two sons, Jacob, and Jacob is given the name Jacob, literally he grasps the heel of his brother, they were twins as they were born, um, but the meaning of deceit is the, of, of Jacob is the word deceit. Jacob, who later in life wrestles with God, and God gives him a new name, and that new name is Israel. So when Nathaniel hears, here's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit, it's very likely that this was the passage Nathaniel was reading under the fig tree. We can't, we don't know that for sure. Okay? But Jesus names this story is what he's naming to Nathaniel. The story of Jacob, the deceiver, became Israel. But do you also recall Jacob's first encounter with God? He's fleeing his brother. He's traveled all day through the, through the desert. He lies down at night, places his head on a stone as a pillow, falls asleep, and has a dream. And in the dream, it's described as he sees the angels ascending and descending. And he wakes up and he says, this is the house of God, because God is appearing in his glory. So when Jesus says to Nathaniel, the story about Nathaniel, Jacob, Israel, you're going to see the angels ascending and descending. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I am the house of God. The house of God is right here as we are together here. Jesus is revealing his glory. God is here among us. The stone that Jacob had his dream on, the house of God. The sanctuary where young Samuel learns the voice of God at night. That was the precursor to the, the, the stone temple, okay? the house of God, where he hears God. The temple later that Solomon builds, when he dedicates it, a cloud covers it because it's filled with glory because that's where the presence of God abides. And Jesus comes along and says, now the presence of God is here among you in me. And John the writer of the gospel, telling us this. John, when he uses the word you, Jesus saying to Nathaniel, truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending. The Greek here for you, truly I say to you, and you will see, that's a plural word. So Jesus is talking to Nathaniel, but he's actually addressing the fledgling group of disciples, and John, in writing this down for us, is addressing us. And we shall see the glory of God in Jesus as it resides in Jesus. 
God among us, who through his spirit in us, through faith at our baptism, resides in us. God in Jesus resides in us. His glory in us. And that's what we bring to our reading of the New Testament reading, the epistle reading, the Corinthians chapter 6. So much there, um, particularly about sexuality, and that's another topic. I'm not trying to, to, to ignore that topic. Glad to have that conversation with anyone as are any of the leaders here in the church. But for the sake of pairing that with this story, what Paul is saying in that 1 Corinthians 6, when people say, hey, basically people are saying, it's my body, I can do what I want to, I can eat what I want to, I can do what I want to sexually. And Paul says, it's not about rights. It's not about being able to. It's about being the temple of God. We are the temple of God. God residing in us, revealing his glory. And thus how we treat our bodies honors God. And it's how God honors us. And here, brothers and sisters in Christ, here is where this whole epiphany-tide theme of glory comes among us directly. For we are the revelation of Jesus Christ. Each one of us temples through his Holy Spirit in us, revealing more and more of the presence of Jesus day by day. I love the collect for this week. If we can get the slide up for that. Read it with me. Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the light of the world, grant that your people, illumined by your word and sacraments, may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory, that he may be known, worshipped, and obeyed to the ends of the earth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. We are illumined. Glory. In us. We are illumined with the radiance of Christ's glory. This is how our God becomes our God, as Pete led us through last week. I forget the Maori words already, but our God becoming our God through us illumined by the presence of Jesus in us through his spirit. Look at the person next to you. This is for real. Look at the person next to you and say, glory. Glory. Now look at the the other direction. Say it again. Glory. We reveal Jesus wherever we go. Wouldn't that be a wonderful way to greet each other instead of just, you know, for Christians to greet each other instead of saying hi, to say glory. And just glory shot through our daily encounters. In fact, let's try it when we pass the peace of Christ. When you say the peace of Christ be with you, then just add glory. Okay? Because as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, we are being transformed into the image of Christ day by day as we gaze on, as we contemplate his glory. So I invite you to make this an epiphany practice these next weeks from now until Ash Wednesday. Noticing the revelation of God around you throughout the day. Beauty and creation, glory. Each other's face, glory. 
something that happens, glory. As you read the scriptures and they are illumined, glory. And as we come to this table, our Eucharistic table, where our praises ascend to heaven and the presence of the Lord descends to us. And we, illumined by the sacraments and filled with the very presence of God, join our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, proclaiming, holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Glory and glory and glory until he comes again in great glory and we shall see our Lord face to face. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.